The following lecture was delivered at the 17th Annual National Jewish Retreat in Palm Desert, California, a project of the Roar Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy it. We encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Rabbi Moshe Brisky now presents his lecture, Singing in the Rain, From Exile to Redemption. The evening newscasts, they always start, they all start the same with the words, good evening. Right? Every anchor starts with good evening. And then they proceed to tell you why it's not really such a good evening after all. And this seems to always happen in our personal lives as well, where we get these bits of good news and it always comes with some doses of bad news. Like this woman calls her husband at work and he says, uh, she says, I have good news and bad news. So he says to her, sorry, dear, I, I'm so busy at the moment. I don't have much time to talk. Just, just give me the good news. The earbags work. A woman calls her husband and says, there's trouble with the car. It won't start. There's water in the carburetor. The husband says to his wife, water in the carburetor? What do you know about carburetors? I'm telling you, there's water in the carburetor. Yeah, right, let, let me check it out. Where's the car? In the lake. <laughs> there's this very interesting discussion in the Talmud that I'd like to start with today. And the sages are having a debate. And this was the question on the floor that day. Is it better for a person to have been born in the world or would it have been better never to have been born at all? That's the question, a philosophical question. Everyone stated their opinion, and the sages took a vote. And the majority that day said, It would have been preferable for man not to have been born. Because life is difficult, and life has many struggles, so it would be easier not to have been born in the first place. But the Talmud didn't leave it there. And the Talmud said, but now that you have been born, you have to make the best of it. You fash face b'masav, examine your actions, do what you have to do to make life as good as it possibly can. Now the Hasidic commentaries on this particular piece of Talmud explain that we have to be careful when we study this particular piece of Talmud to separate between two words, easier and better. They're not exactly the same. It would have been easier to have not been born, but that doesn't make it better. It's better to be born. True life is not easy, but it is good, and it is a gift, and it is a blessing, and it is precious, and it is a privilege. Some of you may have remembered the former governor of Indiana. His name was Mitch Daniels. He went from being the governor of Indiana to being the president of Purdue University. And as the president of Purdue University, he gave a commencement speech to the graduates. If you've ever listened to most of these commencement speeches, they're all pretty much the same, and they're pretty boring. But every once in a while, you come across something, and you say, wow, that's profound. I quote Mitch Daniels' commencement speech because I don't know if anyone studied Hasidus with him, but it was a very deep, deep message. Let me paraphrase for you just a few of his points. He began first by congratulating the graduates on their bachelor's degrees, their master's degrees, and then he said, as impressive as your diplomas that you have earned today may be, you should know that most employers out there today are realizing that diplomas say very little or nothing about a candidate's readiness for work. So I'm glad you put in all these years, but it doesn't really mean that much today. It's a different world today. There have been many studies done the, on the issue of happiness, he said. In every one of these studies, the conclusion is always the same. The most important predictor of happiness in life is earned success. And that involves sustained difficult effort to surmount setbacks in life. The most dangerous and destructive idea, he said, is to think 
that life is like a lottery, that you're not the masters of your own fate, but you're like corks floating in a sea of luck. Yes, it's true, some have better luck than others, some are handed a much better set of circumstances than others, there's no doubt about it, but unless we're talking about tragically bad luck, in the end, it's not luck that will determine the quality and the outcome of your life. Because no matter your lot, you can always tilt the odds in your favor through common sense behavior, by making healthy choices, by getting and staying married, and especially by working hard. As movie pioneer Sam Goldman once said, the harder I work, the luckier I get. You know, the old joke, when the Yankel, the Schlamazel, wins the lottery. We have big lottery over the country the last few days. Any of you won? <laughs> Yankel hit the jackpot. He won $20 million compared to one and a half billion. They say it's, it's pennies, but he is big. For Yankel, the Schlamazel, it was big. So people came and said, Yankel, the Schlamazel, how did you do it? The Schlamazel like you. You never get anything right, he says. I use two things. Seichel, intellect, ingenuity, my mind, and mazel. I combine the two together. How does that work, combining seichel, intellect, and mazel? He says, here's the seichel part, the intellect part. I always knew that seven is a lucky number. So I figured, if seven is a lucky number, how much luckier is seven times seven? And so all the numbers I picked were connected to 48. <laughs> so they said, Yankel Shlomazel, seven times seven is not 48, it's 49. He says, that's where Mazel came in. I was never good at math. Governor Daniels' message to those graduates was that no matter your past or your present situation, you need not and should not see yourselves as victims of your circumstances. You can stand back and point to all the causes and culprits that are to blame for the difficulties and the lack of achievements and success, if that's what you choose to do. But as legitimate as your grievances may be, by going down that route, he said, you are depraving yourself of the best feature of your humanity, and that's your innate power to overcome your challenges, to overcome your setbacks, and to reach the summit of your God-given potential. It's up to you to chart your own course and to shape your own destiny towards a productive and happy life. I read this and I said, wow, this is, this is Torah, this is Jewish thought. And tomorrow we're going to talk, we have a lecture tomorrow just on the subject of free will. The Torah taught us man was born to toil. Yes, we believe there's something called mazel, which is another way of saying God's blessing, but we also know that we have to create the vessels for the mazel, for the blessings. We have to put in what's called hishtadlut, that's our investment of toil, our investment of effort for us to become our best selves. And more often than not, it's only after we scale those tallest mountains and overcome the toughest of challenges that we attain our true sense of being alive. Everyone has their own sets of struggles and challenges that we contend with in life. And every day, every day we face our own customized tests. And we spoke about two days ago, the binding of Isaac, our own binding of Isaac. And when it comes to moral issues, God gives us that free choice so that when we're faced with this test and we face with these challenges in life, we can either shrivel in the face of it or we can go ahead and use that experience to catapult ourselves to true greatness. You know, there's a statement in Ethics of Our Fathers that says, Lefum tsara agra, commensurate to the struggle is the reward. So that, for example, for most of us, I, I would hope I can say this safely, for most of us, abstaining from murder is not very impressive. You know, when you get to the next world, you're not going to get too much credit if you say up there at the uh, trial of your life, 
but I didn't murder anyone. And given how you were raised and the values that your parents instilled within you, murder was not quite an option for you. We each can, can pick different things. Like, as I've said this from this pulpit before, for me, eating lobster is not a struggle. When I see those creatures swimming in the tanks in the supermarkets, I'm walking an aisle away. I'm looking for raid. I'm not looking for ketchup. You know, people like escargot. I see snails after a rain. I'm not thinking dinner there. But for some, it's a, it's a delicacy. So we each face things differently. The point is, if you're only doing what comes naturally and easily for you, you're only avoiding that which you have this natural aversion to, it may be very nice, but are you really exercising that power of free choice? Are you really growing? Are you really achieving? This coming September, we'll be commemorating the 22nd anniversary of 9-11. I want to take you back to the day after the attack in 2001. The New York Times ran an amazing story about this woman who worked on the 64th floor of Tower 2. This woman could not walk without the aid of crutches. So to get to work, it was the elevator. To get home, it was the elevator. She lived with the elevator. There was no way she can get down steps. And as the people are running for their lives, the woman's fellow employees try to carry her down the stairs. But after carrying her 10 flights, they couldn't do it anymore. And that's where another co-worker, a man the New York Times identifies as Lewis, came to the struggling group. He lifted this woman on his shoulders and carried her all by himself. The temperature in the stairwell was over 90 degrees. This man carried her 54 flights of stairs. She is quoted in the newspaper to say, he did not leave my side until I was inside the ambulance. He stayed with me. As a matter of fact, she said, around the 15th floor, a rescue worker, a firefighter, tells Lewis that the woman was now out of danger because she was on the 15th floor and suggested just leave her here and exit the building by yourself. We'll take care of getting her out from here. Surely at that point, one of in, the inner voices of Lewis must have said, okay, I think I've done enough now. No one else could have done half of what I did to save her. And here even a professional fireman is telling me it's good enough. So let me leave her here and now focus on saving my own life. But instead, Lewis chose to hear another voice, a voice that said she's not safe until she's a vehicle in a vehicle that can take her away from here. And I'm not going to leave a handicapped woman in this chaotic stairwell to fend for herself. You see, the Lewis who ran from his office on the 64th floor that day was not the same Lewis who later emerged from that building. They were two different people. Somewhere between the 54th floor and the ground floor is where it happened. It may not have happened on the landing on the 54th floor when he first picked the woman up and hoisted her over her, his shoulder. At that point, he may have been acting out of his nature. He was a kind person, and he was trying to help. Naturally, it came naturally to him. But at some point... In that smoky, hot stairwell, when his muscles started to hurt, when the heat got to him, when the weight on his shoulders slowed him down more and more, when hundreds of panicked people ran past him, running for their lives, screaming and shouting, somewhere his instinct gave way to choice. He chose to stay with that woman at whatever cost to himself. The Lewis who arrived to work that morning was a man with potential for greatness. The Lewis who emerged from the World Trade Center, sweating and aching on the verge of collapse, was a great man. There is potential within us, and then there is what do we do with that potential?
It's not how good we are, but how good we have become through our efforts. That's the true measure of a person, and that's the tough choices that we have to make each and every single day to become that better person. Someone once said, life is like an ongoing boxing match. We get a bit of respite between rounds, a vacation, a relaxation, some moments of bliss, some tranquility, but then we gotta come out fighting again. And if we get knocked down in the next round, we gotta do the same thing again. Or better said in the words of King Solomon, the righteous fall seven times and they get up again. Because falling is part of life. And everyone, everyone has their share of disappointments or failures now and then. But what differentiates the happy and the successful person from the others is how they react to the falling. How do we talk to ourselves when we're on the canvas, when we're broken, when we're in pain? Do we focus on the embarrassment? Do we focus on the shame? Do we focus on the failure? Or do we have the courage to learn and grow from our setbacks and try yet again? Simply put, do we get up or do we give up? A woman named Goldie Rosenberg tells the story of her father, who years back had built a sweater factory in the Catskill Mountains of New York. This factory was very successful and he created many job opportunities in the area for people that were unemployed. He hired them, he put them to work, the company was thriving. And then along came a recession and it wiped out his factory. The man lost everything. After having created so many jobs for others, he now had no job himself. He was unemployed, no source of income of his own. He was a father of 10, dozen mouths to feed, a mortgage to carry. He tried desperately to find work. Things were so bad that the only job that he could find was that of a night mechanic in someone's factory in Manhattan. Manhattan is three hours from the Catskill Mountains. A job for he was going to only earn minimum wage and it was to work through the night. Given the situation, Mr. Rosenberg did everything he could to cut corners and to make do with less in order to put food on the table and not lose the house. He took that job, but he also sold his car and first he was taking buses every day, and then even the bus fare, even the bus fare from Manhattan back and forth each day was too great an expense. So he found a cheap room to rent during the week where he stayed close to his place of work. And he would only go back home for Shabbos. And even to get home on a Thursday night, he would hitchhike. That's the way Mr. Rosenberg, who once owned this huge company, now how to get home from his busy week in New York working as a mechanic. So there he is one Thursday night, he's on the side of the New York State Thruway trying to catch a ride. No one stopped that night. It was cold, it was miserable out there. And then the rain began, and then the rain turned to hail, and the sleet started falling, drenching his bones. And on top of that, as he stood on the side of the highway trying to hitch a road, each car that sped by, let forth a splash of ice-cold water that would hit him, and he was getting soaked and cold and freezing, trying to get home. It's at that point in life, when you reach that point, that you just want to cry out and say, how much? How much? What else do you got for me? Enough? Somehow or another, many hours later, he manages to get home. His wife and children are waiting up for him, worried, before the era of cell phones, so they don't know where he is and why he's so late, and he comes home soaking wet, freezing and soaking wet, and he tells over his ordeal of what happened, and his wife and his daughter Goldie, who's telling this story, says, you must have been so angry, you must have been so upset, you must have been cursing out, he says, no, no, I stayed calm the whole time. How did you do it? He says, I'll tell you, this is what I did. I stood there seeing the situation that I was in. And instead of getting angry and instead of getting upset, and instead of saying some words to God that I would regret later, I started to sing. 
I started to sing a song. And then the next car came and splashed me some more. So I said, you know what? I'm going to sing louder. And I started singing louder at the top of my lungs. I can sing as loud as I want. Yeah, I stood there and I was singing away. And then the next car that came by and didn't stop but splashed me and said, I said, you know what I'm going to do now? Now I'm going to dance. And there I am on a freezing night. It's raining and it's hailing and I'm sopping wet and I'm freezing. I'm singing at the top of my lungs and I'm dancing on the side of the throughway. That's how I got through. Think about it. Music. Music and song. It's a very interesting phenomenon because it, music, in order for it to come out, always requires force, right? The drum is a skin that's stretched to its tightest, which when you pound with a drumstick creates a certain beat. The guitar, the violin, these are strings that are pulled very tight. And when you pick at it or strum at it, the pressure that it causes brings out music from the string. The piano works the same way, with strings being stretched and then hit. The flute, the clarinet, how do they work? It's all about pressure. It's the blast of ear from the musician breath that passes through this narrow constraint and this narrow space, causing sound to escape through the opening at the other end. Think about it. It's the pressure itself that creates the beautiful sound. We're all called upon to make our own music in this world, and when we're faced with stress in life, we can either buckle like a guitar string that snaps under pressure, or we can channel that tension into creating beautiful music. So sometimes, when it gets to be too much, you just have to sing. Sing and dance right on through the rain. You ever stop to notice the strange thing we Jews do at weddings? Weddings have so many beautiful traditions to it. So much that's going on. So there you have the bride and the groom. They're standing side by side under the chuppah, having this magical moment, right? You've prepared for this for months. You have the florist with the perfect color flowers. You have the photographer. You have the caterer. You have everything. It's to perfection. The party planner. Everything has been mapped out. All the guests are there. The gowns are gorgeous. The dresses are gorgeous. Everything, the cameras are flashing. Blessings are being said. Parents are crying. People are felling. Everything is coming together exactly as it should. And then the very last moment of this magical ceremony, the groom lifts his foot and he breaks a glass. Why? Why do we end such a magical moment with the breaking of a glass? And it's to make a point that as beautiful as all of this is, all is not, in fact, as it should be. When we're living in a world that's still fraught with pain and despair, when we're still very much in exile, when Jerusalem is not rebuilt, Mashiach hasn't come, we break that glass. It represents anguish and destruction and fragmentation. Okay, I, I understand the tradition. I get it. But what's most striking is that the moment the groom breaks the glass, which is all about the pain that we're still in and the exile and the suffering, everything I just said, what does everyone in the audience do? We yell, Mazel Tov! And the music starts playing and we all start that one second. You, you just gave me this explanation about pain, about anguish. Jerusalem isn't rebuilt. We're still in exile. Why at that moment, the moment the glass is breaking, are we now celebrating? Shouldn't have we stayed a little bit longer in that place of sadness, that place of mourning? No, right then with the smashing of the glass, we launch into full-out celebration. Why do we marry the two themes and I think that's exactly the point. We shout out Mazatov exactly, precisely at that moment, expressing our confidence that even in the wake of pain and even in the wake of destruction, there is hope. Even in a deeply flawed and fractured world, we look forward to the future with joy, with optimism, with simcha right then. 
Look, we have a long history of dealing with shattered dreams. We all know the terrible tragedy that took place when Moses came down from Mount Sinai and he saw the fiasco of the golden calf. What does he do with the tablets that he's holding in his hands? He throws them to the ground and he breaks the tablets. And then there's 80 days of repentance, of reconciliation, and we're given a second set of, the ta- a second set of tablets, a second chance at receiving the divine here on earth. But what happened to the broken pieces? What happened to the broken tablets? Did they get swept away and thrown away? No. They were collected, every piece, and they were carried alongside the whole tablets all throughout their journey through the desert. The broken tablets stay in the ark. We're not meant to ignore the messy parts of our lives. We don't need to pretend that everything has always been perfect and has always gone as we hoped. It's only if we choose to collect and preserve the broken pieces, the lessons of plan A, that we get to live in the light of plan B. As Jews, we're not an either or kind of people. We know how to live in a world steeped in pain and at the same time hold on to hope. They don't contradict each other for us. And so it's not bizarre. In fact, it's perfectly in character for us to shout mazel tov even when all is not perfect. To live in a way where wrapped right into the pain is the celebration. The shattered pieces don't belong in the trash. They belong right there alongside the heights of joy of our life. As we say, from my distress, I call out to God. The journey hasn't always been easy. And yet, God does not abandon us. He answers us. He gives us strength. Sometimes, sometimes when it gets to be too much, we just have to sing. Sing and dance right on through the rain. If you're from Israel, you know the name of the person I'm going to talk about. Those of you not from Israel may have read about her. The story of Miriam Peretz. A story has been written up in a book called Miriam's Song. It's been translated into languages throughout the world. She was almost elected the next the president of Israel in the last presidential elections. That's her fame in Israel and how much she's loved in Israel. Who is Miriam Peretz? She was born in Morocco. She immigrated to Israel as a young girl with parents who were poor and illiterate. As a teenager, she took minimal jobs Jobs that just paid a minimal wage, did what people didn't want to do, and she used the money to buy appliances and other necessary items for her parents and to go to a school. And she threw herself into studies. There was plenty that Miriam could have complained about, but she didn't. She focused on her studies. She focused on the future. She became close with all of her classmates. She was focused on working and on studying. Eventually, she earns two degrees. She got married, she raised a family, she helped build an Israeli community in the Sinai, which then had to be evacuated when the peace agreement was signed with Egypt in 1979. So the Peretz family relocates to a small suburb in Jerusalem. She accepts a teaching position at a local school and soon becomes a very popular principal of that school. She's fully engaged in her career and raising her family. Everything is going fine for Miriam Peretz until tragedy strikes. Her oldest son, Oriel, was killed by a terrorist during his army service. That dreaded knock on the door came as army representatives arrived at her home to give Miriam and her husband the unbearable news. Life for the Peretz family would not be the same after that. There would always be Oriel's empty chair at the Shabbos table. His humor, his charm would be missed by his younger siblings. Miriam's husband, Eliezer, invested time and effort to memorialize his son, undertaking various projects to keep his memory alive. But it wasn't enough. Oriel was gone, and his heart was shattered. He died five years after Oriel. While no tests could ever show it, even doctors agreed, Eliezer had died of a broken heart. Miriam was now left without her trusted partner and closest friend. The loneliness was excruciating. 
but she made a choice. Onwards, onwards, I must go on. Despite it all, she would remain present and available for her family. And then the unthinkable. Almost 12 years to the day after her son Ariel was killed, she looks out the window and she sees men in army uniforms approaching her door. They knocked. Her second-born son, Ali Raz, was serving in the IDF. She refuses to answer the door. They knocked again. As she writes in her own words, in my mind, as long as they didn't enter and give me the official notice, my son was still alive, and I needed to hold on to that. But of course, it was short-lived, and she was informed, indeed, that Ali Raz was killed in a battle with terrorists on the Gaza border. Until that time, she says, I was sure that my other sons would not be harmed during their military service. I mean, how could tragedy strike me again? Miriam now had four grandchildren without a father, a young daughter-in-law suddenly a widow. She describes how she went through all stages of grief. Eventually, she said, I came to realize that I was powerless over what had happened. I could not bring back my sons. We don't get to decide when we are born, nor do we decide when we leave this world. But so long as I am alive, I have the ability to wake up each day and live a purposeful life at least that day. She goes on to say, how grateful would my son be if he can come back for even one minute, just one minute to hear his toddler son say, Abba. From that perspective, how could I not appreciate having another minute of life? Of course, she's the first to admit that it's not easy. There's no question that I would be justified staying in bed most days. And believe me, there are days in which I feel like doing just that. But I don't. I keep moving. There is so much I can do in life. I can speak. I can walk. How many people can't do that? Each day that I wake up in the morning, I must make the choice again. I will live. Today, Miriam Peretz is incredibly active. Every week she goes out and speaks to hundreds of IDF soldiers. She goes from city to city all across the Holy Land. She visits every bereaved family who suffered the loss of a loved one in the IDF. She volunteers her time for many worthy organizations. Her schedule is packed from morning to night every single day. And as I said, she's become a legend in Israel. She's well known and she's beloved by Israelis of all types. People come up to the street just asking for a hug. They just want to be near this woman. Her smile, her patience as a way of opening people's hearts. Don't give up, she whispers while stroking a tear-filled cheek of someone else in pain. We have a choice to make each day. Some will be bad, but many will be good. So keep on living. If I can do it, so can you. And with that, Miriam moves on, continuing her daily mission to live as fully as she possibly can. To appreciate the title of her book, written by Miriam Peretz, as Miriam's Song, is to appreciate the power and the depth of the Jewish soul, of the approach of the Jew that says, no matter what comes my way, I will not sit back and feel sorry for myself. I will continue to go out there and create music in the world. Sometimes, when it gets to be too much, you just have to sing. Sing and dance your way through the rain. I want to take you back to the Democratic primaries of 2016. Bernie Sanders gave Hillary Clinton quite a run for her money. He ran again in 2020 and gave Biden a run for his money. He was certainly the most successful Jewish candidate to ever run for president. But it's interesting that his Jewish identity was hardly mentioned during the campaign including by the candidate himself. 
So this prompted the moderator during one of the debates, who was CNN's Anderson Cooper, to ask Sanders this question. Why are you keeping your Judaism under wraps? Why don't you talk about it? You never say it. To which Bernie Sanders responds, I quote, no, I am very proud to be Jewish. He then explained that the Holocaust had wiped out his father's family and that he remembers as a child seeing neighbors with numbers from the concentration camps tattooed on their arms. Being Jewish, he declared, is essential part of who I am as a human being. It was a very interesting answer. Nothing to do with presidential politics. But what it says about how so many Jews relate to their Judaism. I'm not criticizing Bernie Sanders for that. I give him credit for his sincerity and for his honesty, but it has become increasingly common for American Jews, and especially young Jews, to pin their identity on the Holocaust. He was asked about his Judaism. What does he say? I had loved ones that I lost in the Holocaust. What does that have to do with you expressing your Judaism? But so many will relate the fact that they connect their Judaism to the Holocaust. And look, the Holocaust is indeed central to Jewish education. It's central to Jewish history. It's essential to Jewish discussion as well as it should be, especially when there are those who would seek to heap indignity upon the memory of the six million by trying to deny what happened and erase the lessons that must be learned from that very dark blot on human history. And as you all know, as the son of survivor, many of my stories are from the Holocaust period of time. But let's understand this, and let's be clear. It's not the horrors, it's not the torture, it's not the brutality, it's not the suffering, it's not the genocide of the Holocaust that defines who we are. We don't share these stories to make the point that we are the world's victims. On the contrary, those stories are intended to reinforce the fact that we are the perennial victors in the landscape of human history. The real thrust of the stories is not that we suffered, it's that we survived. It's not that we died, it's that we are alive. It's not that we are a broken and tattered people. We emerge from those horrors. We rebuilt Jewish life in dynamic fashion all over the world. We built a thriving modern state of Israel. That's the message we take from the Holocaust. A number of years ago, we lost a towering figure in the person of Elie Wiesel. I'm sure many of you have read his book, Night, in which Wiesel recounted his experience in the concentration camps including the horrors of seeing his father slowly deteriorate to death before his very eyes. A small quote from his book. Never shall I forget the small faces of the children whose bodies I saw transformed into smoke under a silent sky. Never shall I forget those flames that consume my faith forever. Never shall I forget those moments that murdered my God and my soul, and turn my dreams to ashes. Never. Raw, painful, haunting words emanating from a soul racked with agony, struggling with this gut-wrenching crisis of faith. But as Wiesel himself said on many occasions, a lot changed for him in terms of his crisis of faith after this yechidus, this private audience he had with the Lubavitcher Rebbe in the mid-1960s. It was a conversation that went on for many hours dealing with some of the most difficult philosophic and theological questions. A dialogue that they would continue over the course of many years and thereafter in written correspondence. I won't get into the depth of those discussions now, but I will share with you something that Wiesel conveys in his book, The Gates of the Forest. He writes about that private audience that when he first came into the Rebbe's room, the Rebbe asks him, what do you expect of me? What are you hoping that I can do for you? To which his initial response is nothing. I'm not here for anything. 
But by the end of the visit, after the hours of deep probing conversation and debate, he says to the Rebbe, you asked me hours ago when I first walked in here if there was anything that I wish to ask of you. And I said no. But the truth is, there is something that I want you to help me with. Ever since my father died before my eyes, I have not been able to properly mourn for him and other members of my family, for I have lost the ability to cry. I don't cry. As he wrote in night, the fountainhead of tears had dried up. A part of him was afraid that once he would start crying, he would never be able to stop. So he's asking the Rebbe, teach me, teach me how to cry again. And the Rebbe says to him, more than to teach you how to cry, I will teach you how to sing. As important as it is for you to remember your loved ones with the tears, it's more important that you remember them with your song. Elie Wiesel walked out of the room a changed man that day. The truest way of honoring the memory of the six million is by keeping alive the ideals, the values that they live for. That's how we bring them back to life. What a tragedy it would be if the narrative of a people with 3,000 years of creative genius that illuminated and enriched every society we have inhibited and inhabited and we would be reduced just by being victims. The memories are sacred. It's what we do with these memories that needs to be more clearly understood. Victimhood has never been and is not now the foundation of Jewish identity. To be a Jew and connected to Israel by definition means you're not a victim. I want to share this article I read written by an Israeli citizen a number of years ago. I'm going to read it verbatim. We were 650,000 Jews against the rest of the Arab world. No IDF at the time, no Air Force. We were only a small group of stubborn people with nowhere to go. Remember, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Jordan, Egypt, Libya, Saudi Arabia, all attacked us at once. The state that the United Nations gave us was 65% desert. We started from zero. 56 years ago, we fought three of the strongest countries in the Middle East, and we crushed them in the Six-Day War. Over the years, we fought different coalitions of 20 Arab countries with modern armies and with huge amounts of Russian-Soviet ammunition, and we still won. Today, we have a beautiful country, a powerful army, a strong air force, and an adequate navy, and a thriving high-tech industry. Intel, Microsoft, and IBM have all developed their businesses here. Our doctors have won important prizes in the medical development field. We turn the desert into a prosperous land. We sell oranges, flowers, and vegetables around the world. We launched our own satellite, three satellites at once. We are on one of only a handful of countries in the world to have launched things into space, the others of which have populations millions of times that of our own. To think that only 80 years ago we were disgraced and supposedly homeless, hopeless. We crawled out of the burning crematoriums of Europe. We won all our wars with little more than nothing, and we built an empire. With God on our side, we overcame the Greeks, we overcame the Romans, we overcame the Spanish Inquisition, we overcame the Russian pogroms, we overcame Hitler, we overcame the Holocaust, we overcame the armies of seven countries, and with God on our side, we will overcome our current enemies as well. Think about it. Our condition has never been better than now. So let's lift our heads and remember Never mind which country or culture tries to harm us or erase us from the world, we will still exist and we will persevere. Anyone know where the Egyptian empire disappeared to? The Greeks, the Romans, is anyone speaking Latin today? The Third Reich, did anyone hear news from them lately? And look at us, the Bible nation, from slavery in Egypt, we are still here, still speaking the same language, exactly here, exactly now. Maybe our neighbors don't quite know it yet, but we are an eternal nation. 
As long as we keep our identity, we will stay eternal. So I'm sorry that we're not worrying and complaining and crying or fearing. Business here is beseder. It's just fine. It can certainly be better, and it's still fine. Don't pay attention to the nonsense in the media. They will not tell you about our festivals here in Israel or about the people that continue living, going out, meeting friends. Yes, sometimes morale is down. This is only because we're mourning the dead while they're celebrating spilled blood. And this is the reason we will win after all. So stand up tall and proclaim with pride, Am Yisrael Chai. I am a Jew today, tomorrow, always, and forever. My friends, if there is ever a nation in the world that can be excused for identifying itself as history's victims, it's certainly the Jews. But as you just heard from our Israeli friend, and we all know it, that's not what we do. That's not how we roll. We are not victims. We are Jews. We are victors. We are the architects, we are the builders, we are the developers, we are the designers, we are the fixers, we are the innovators, we are the enhancers, we are the enrichers, we are the educators of human civilizations, not victims. Allow me to conclude with the story of Sarah Tachia Littman. The story takes back, goes us to 2015. Sarah was scheduled to marry her groom, Ariel Bagel, on November 16th, 2015. Three days before the wedding. It's Friday, November 13th. Her parents and her siblings, seven and all, were driving from their home in Kiryat Alba, Israel, to be near Beit Sheva, Be'er Sheva, where their daughter's groom, Ariel, would be called and read from the Torah on his last Shabbos as a single man. It's called the Afra. If he gets called to the Torah, it's a special occasion. It's traditional for the bride to have her final Shabbat as a single girl in the company of her friends. And so bride and groom, they don't see each other before the wedding. Sarah stayed home while her family made the trip to be with the groom for the Shabbat Chatan. Candies would be thrown at him when he would be called to the Torah with shouts of Mazel Tov. But it was not to be. The car was set upon by Arab terrorists who laid in waste for Jewish prey. The terrorists sprayed the car filled with the Lippmans. The bride's father, Rabbi Yaakov Lippman, and her 18-year-old brother, Nathaniel, were murdered on the spot. Her mother, a 16-year-old brother, and three young sisters, age 11, 9, and 5, were wounded. On Sunday, a day before her scheduled wedding, Sarah Tachia buried her father and buried her brother. Her wedding day became a day of mourning, part of Shiva for her father and her brother. No wedding reception. No father to escort his daughter to the chuppah. No white gown, no flowers, no wedding filled with guests dancing for hours into the night. At least not this week. At the Sunday funeral, the poor bride was beyond hysterical. How does one cope with such horror? And her powerful, tearful remarks at the funeral, she turns to God. And she says, God, I can't handle this one. I must give it over to you. It's too dark. It's too traumatic. It's too senseless. senseless. I need you, God, to take over from here. She and her groom postponed, postponed their wedding for two weeks to November 29th. They printed an invitation with this biblical verse on the cover. Do not rejoice over me, my enemy. I have fallen, but I have gotten up. I sit in darkness, but God is a light for me. But our dearest bride did more than just this. She felt that the only way she could dance at this wedding was if she had the entire Jewish people behind her. So she and her groom posted their wedding invitation on social media, and she wrote, I'm inviting the entire Jewish world to this wedding. 
my dear friends, two weeks after her family was struck by this bitter, unfathomable blow, she was joined by thousands upon thousands of Jews. They came to Jerusalem's International Convention Center from all across Israel, and in fact, from all over the world. Synagogues from every part of the world selected a representative of their synagogue to fly to Israel to represent their synagogue at this special wedding, to wish a mazel tov, to dance with the groom and bride, to offer love. The wedding was simulcastly broadcast live on the webcast so we were all able to watch. And we watched Sarah and Ariel get married that night in Jerusalem. Like many in the audience, we shed tears watching that emotional chuppah. And we sang along watching this heavenly, otherworldly dancing at this wedding. What a people. What a nation. Sometimes, when it gets to be too much, you just have to sing. Sing and dance right through the rain. Dear friends, whatever our individual circumstances in life may be, let us not see our struggles and our challenges as impediments and obstacles to our achieving a true sense of happiness and fulfillment in life. On the contrary, let us see them as opportunities to propel us to newer and greater heights in all aspects. If a woman like Miriam Peretz can get out of bed every morning and find a way to battle through her sorrows and burdens to make music in this world, music that brings joy into her life and to the lives of her children, her grandchildren, and to thousands of others, what's our excuse not to? If Sarah Littman can get up from Shiva and dance at her wedding, what's our excuse not to? No matter what grueling challenges we've been handed, let us reach deep down into the reservoirs of faith, of courage, of resilience that are innate to the Jewish soul. And let us galvanize that power to sing and dance right on through the rain. And very soon, we will merit the ultimate sunshine as the clouds will be lifted, as darkness will be turned to light, and we in the micro of our personal lives and the macro of us as a people collectively, we will celebrate the coming of the righteous Moshiach. May it happen speedily in our days. Thank you. Please visit myjli.com to learn more about JLI's multiple educational offerings.